Hello and welcome to the review for the 6th of December 2022, the first re- review of December, the first review where Kyogo on the calendar was in view of the Zoom call, that you can see. The small picture is Albi, a Yeti, so it's two for one, a two for, yes, and joined by, joined all the way from Ayrshire, joining me, Graham McKay, your host, I always need to get that in, is uh, Christian Wolf, how are you Christian? I'm well. I am, of course, the Albion Ayeti to your Kyogo Fiorashi. Sunglasses and all. Sunglasses <laughs> and all. What, what have you been up to this week? Has it been a, a stress-free week? Have you, have you got all the, the presents in for Christmas? How are you feeling in that front with only, what, two Mondays to go until Christmas? Don't, don't say that. <laughs> um, we're getting there um, with the boys. You have this kind of parallel thing where you also have to prep all the presents and, and try to figure out what they want. But then at the same time, at this point, you start writing the letters to Santa. So you mm. also want to make sure there's nothing in that letter to Santa that you actually haven't planned, you haven't got or haven't planned to go. So you have to heavily steer that list to Santa as well. Um, but I think, I think we're doing well. Um, but I mean, especially Max's into like football cards, personal Pokemon cards. And, and also now football Lego um, doing this like a stop motion video. So the, the amount of eBay auctions, you should see my eBay, eBay like uh, notification list. Is uh, I don't know how I've ended up the, the things I'm, there's some sort of specific Pokemon dragon, a silver car, you know, honestly, but they're not that expensive, but it's just, it's a lot of, a lot of admin. Not mm. my eBay admin at the moment. Um, Especially with postal strikes coming up, that will be quite stressful. Well, it's obviously support for postal strikes, so uh, we're trying to get this in as as quickly as possible. Um, good, good friend, uh, obviously Ruth Boyle, uh, put me on to a birthday gift for my uh, wife yesterday as well. So oh, there you go, shout, shout out to Ruth Boyle. Do you do the full like Europe continental European Christmas where you have it on the twenty fourth? Oh no. No. Um, no, I've never really done that. And also, Christmas Eve is tough enough. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's like toy building. Uh, we're hosting, so you have to get everything ready. And you just want to have 10 minutes before everything starts as well. So, no, uh, not really. We've never been to Norway for, for Christmas. We were supposed to go last year, but just the pandemic, everything put a, a stop to it. So, no, I'm I'm happily embracing Embracing the, the, the Britishness, I guess, the Scottishness, I guess. Uh, anyway, you can say that. Um, of it all. So, yeah. I'll give I was, you an insight. Sorry, I was speaking to my mom yesterday. Yeah, she's, they were going to their uh, one of my step uh, brothers in Norway, and it's about like an hour's drive away. And I was like, oh, okay, are you going to stay there then? And I was driving home afterwards. I was like, are you driving home afterwards? Maybe I sounded too shocked. I was like, yeah, you know, it's just. You know, drinking at Christmas—it's not that. It's not that a big thing on Christmas Eve and over. And I was like, maybe it isn't. I mean, you do drink, but maybe I mean, can, can, you, can, imagine, can you imagine a Christmas Eve without drinking? No. Oh, okay, sorry, Christmas Day even. So, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be up for that. But I'll give you an insight into uh, the Christmas Eve of a dink couple. So double income, no kids. We just we just get drunk. Uh, hold just... on, double ink. What, what did you just say? Dink, a dink couple, double income, no kids. <laughs> Don't wink, no kids. What? D- double income, no kids. Double income, no kids. Thank you. Yes. 
you can wink as well if you want. So, so, yeah. <laughs> but you're winking to each other. Um, <laughs> so, well, I mean, technically, we have a few drinks as well. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so, are you are you what are you doing food? I mean, speaking like we're just recording before Christmas here. Are you doing? Are you bring any of of Barhead other than yourself? To, to the Christmas celebrations? No, actually, I wouldn't be. I, I wouldn't be here. I'll be back to Scotland for the for the for Christmas. So, and then Kristen will join me on the twenty eighth. So she'll fly over on the twenty eighth, and we'll have New Year in Scotland. So, yeah, that's nice. So the first Christmas as a married couple apart, apart. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think it'd be different if we had kids. Then you have to kind of do it together. But I mean, I mean, you mom, do it there even if you don't have. kids. My mum's in her seventies now, so I don't think it's going to be something that's going to be going on much longer. So, <laughs> to, to be fair, but actually, I was—I I need to speak to you off podcast because uh, we're planning uh, a drive from up from Germany into Denmark, Norway, Sweden. We're going to try and do a two-week tour of of Scandi. So, I'll, I'll need to get some recommendations from you at some point. I don't know why we should do that off air. That sounds like a great podcast. <laughs> Just plan my holiday on oh, no. a podcast form. Yeah, looking forward to it. Right, so let's get started with the actual content of a football podcast. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why people would want that to happen, but our friend at The Athletic, Owen, Owen Brown, he had an exclusive interview with Kyogo uh, today. I think it was today it got published. And Kyogo definitely came across as being pretty open. Yeah. Pretty kind of vulnerable at times as well. I'll just give you some some of the quotes. He was talking about his disappointment at missing at the World Cup. He said, "Either way, my motivation remains the same. I want to score as many goals as possible for my club and do my best so that our club wins games and as many titles as possible. The World Cup would have been an extension of my way with our club." He also spoke about how he gave a brief congratulations to Maeda, but hasn't really spoken to. <laughs> the Japanese boys about the, the the World Cup. I mean, he's obviously saying the right things, but there was a, a tinge of uh, sadness, I think, uh, in, in what he was saying, especially when you consider that in the next World Cup will be 31. He has spoken, he does speak in the interview about playing on until at least 35, so he thinks he's got two World Cups left. Uh, and that obviously that is a thing that happens in Japanese football. What, what did you make of uh, Kyogo and his kind of thoughts in this interview? Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, doing the athletic job on easy mode here, like this, you know, Kerry Devlin didn't care about exclusives. You know, he did it all the hard way, uh, really. Edit how uh, articles and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like like Bob Dylan's bootleg uh, copies. Um, Kerry said you how articles. Uh, shout out to Kerry Devlin. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it, it was good. It's actually quite refreshing. You know, joking aside, in terms of having a Celtic player doing an interview that is not a press conference and is not essentially, you know, outside your standard five minutes on Sky or, you know, just really superficial. Uh, you know, Celtic as a club really do not give access to their players much. You know, especially these kind of, I guess, publications like Athletic, not just that, but any other kind of publication. Remember, Brendan Rodgers did, I think, a Daily Mail interview with Oliver Holt, which is like... Sounds like the kind of thing he would do. (laughs) 
But it's just, it's really seldom you actually get kind of access. And obviously, I don't think Oven had loads of minutes with, with, with Kyogo here, but it, it, it was uh, it was interesting in, in terms of how he's, 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 he's talking there. He's obviously, you take a player who's, who's I think, is very focused and very, I guess, almost, as you say, considerate of his uh, employee um, as well. It, it is, that's, that's the kind of second time he's, there's an offbeat comment in terms of the, the Japanese players between them. Remember, they like had a Hatate interview where, they, where Kyogo came on and, he, he, and Hatate, like, kind of very respectfully said, Yes, it's, it's great inspiration. Don't talk too much. <laughs> that much. And the, you almost get this kind of sense with, with Kyogo here as well. Um, I think it would have, as you said, I think it probably, you know, it's, he's peak age now. In terms of striking qualities, you know, there's a little bit in the article in terms of how he hadn't really scored for the international team much, uh, especially not lately. And maybe that was something to do with it. <sighs> yeah, I haven't watched a bit of Japan. I think it would have fitted in really well in terms mm. of that playing style and, and so on. So yeah, let's not steam a start on that tat in there. But it was nice to see to actually get a little bit underneath the, the surface of it, especially some of the. the you know, I guess had had his blog and stuff, but uh, Kyogo and I actually get a little bit of insight because what you usually get through this, you know, the Celtics access here in the Scottish press is, is really, really basic, and you know, five minutes in the press conference, really. I think it's, I, I think it must be a cultural thing because I know from like uh, there's a lot of Erasmus students over here at the university, and they all stick together, and I know when like. Uh, if we're abroad, we we will not maybe look out Scottish people, but we will we will speak to Scottish people. Do you think there's a kind of um, Japanese cultural thing that, despite the fact that they are the four kind of Japanese foreigners abroad, they haven't they don't seem to have like adopted much of a friendship, or maybe that's just something we're not we're not seeing. Um. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there is. I guess there is an assumption that if you have. Four persons from the same country, essentially going, you know, to a new country and and, and working together. That instantly, they, you know, they, they will stick together. And I think it's probably, as I think Ange has alluded to before, it's like you did, they are individuals. They are four different people, and obviously, they'll be. I, I'm absolutely no expert in because kind of Japanese society or, or anything like that. So I, I wouldn't want to say, but it is. You know, I, I, I guess a country has a slightly different societal norms and kind of just that interaction between people and so on. I think there's a lot to do with you know seniority and these kind of things and respect. So, um, it, I don't think they not get along, but it's it's Richard always like kind of treat them as as individuals. Um, as you say that you know when I went to university, I tried to avoid Norwegians as much as possible. I can see why. Because I I wanted that, you know, uh, proper experience. And uh, by God, I got it. So, yeah. For for me being over here, I think I do kind of clutch on to the, 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 especially the British people, because you have got that shared kind of cultural history and you can talk about things you can't talk about with people that didn't experience it. But I I think, as as you said, every every culture will have some kind of differences in that way. Some of the couple of things, some of the things that he he mentions that I thought were quite interesting, I highlighted here. He spoke about playing like they have a pressing wave, mm-hmm. eh, which I enjoyed. He spoke about it being like always trying to be in active mode and not resting mode. 
he also said that he watches videos on YouTube of how other players score their goals and how they took the ball. Uh, what, what did you make of those those comments? Uh, do, do, do Celtic press like they have a pressing wave? Because I don't think I've seen it that much this season. Yeah. There is, I guess there's triggers to the pressing. And I, I think in terms of especially Kyogo and Maeda's kind of triggering those kind of press and then you have somebody else coming after. Like, uh, I guess especially I mean, Maeda is, is quite good at doing that in, in, in tandem. So I guess there's like a cascade of, of, of pressing too, really. But uh, so maybe it's just one of those when you have, you know, players or fans or anybody from outside of Britain kind of describing football terms, both if it's translated or in their own language, you know, there's a really nice kind of phrases. And I think a pressing wave is, is quite a nice phrase for that uh, in that sense. But yeah, he's nice, you know, he's covered it. It was obviously, I think every single player that kind of are asked about the, the playing style and stuff always kind of refers if it's you know if it's Joe Hart if it's Matt O'Reilly if it's Kyogre Harris it's that team that you always should be switched on you should all <laughs> you don't stop and especially about he says you know about throw-ins and and for Joe Hart always the goal kicks it's drilled into them and and I think that's kind of come back to Ange's what how he seems to be able to communicate his ideas whereas I think there's a really clear tactical plans his philosophy but you kind of need to get players to follow that and sign up to that through simple steps right and one of the simple steps as you say is like we don't stop so you you drill that into and you can use you know specific like drawings or goal kicks but i think that essentially permutates everything you do and any it doesn't have to be overly complex tactical instructions because you start from a point of you don't stop so you know that goes into the pressing it comes into the I guess moving the ball uh, movement on the pitch as well like you, you don't stop and I think that's probably one of the clear defined steps of this playing style and how it's actually coached into players it's clear simple instructions um, but they are followed you know to the letter and, and 100% the whole game one of the things he mentions as well is about training consciously and uh, playing unconsciously, I think it was. And uh, it did, I apparently heard that from a coach early on. And uh, I don't know, there is some kind of like um, something very Japanese sounding about about that concept. Uh, what what did you make of the idea of him watching YouTube videos to see how other players are finishing their goals? Is, does that surprise you that someone at 27, a professional footballer, is doing that kind of thing? Um. The funny thing is, I, I've been watching a lot of those videos because Max, who's six, um, <laughs> loves them in terms of all the kind of uh, kind of challenges and stuff. So, no, I, I think that's I think that's great. I think y- you want players who are curious, and, and they don't stop being curious in in any sense, be it simply about understanding tactical ideas, you know, reading up on a. Um, be it you know watching videos and, and doing that, I mean, it comes back to you know, simple video analysis as well. You know, it, in such a intense training week for Celtic with two games, it's probably a limited amount of time you, you maybe get with each player to to do any sort of video analysis. I, I remember there was 
Mosa Dembele went through like a slight dry spell at Celtic at one point. And I think after the, I think it might be Rogers afterwards, he referenced the fact that, you know, we, but he came back, he had a really good game. He kind of Rogers referenced the fact that afterwards that, you know, they've been sitting down with him, showing him clips of what he'd been doing really well before. And, and that was kind of, you know, it's a, a trigger to kind of get back to that. So I, I think it's kind of good to, in any sense, to take the consideration, watching yourself, watching others in terms of when you have that time to actually, I don't know if it's triggering something in yourself. And I think it's good to take a step back, learn from others, as I said, but also kind of look at your own movements and, and kind of, I guess, in a way, research the game, research your own game. And so, so you, you do want curious players. A lot of people are just players. Some people, flamboyant, will be purely instinct, and they are happy to go with that. But there will be other players who, who do that amount of research. And Kyogo's always struck me as somebody who is aware of that, you know, the, the consciousness of it, but also wanting to learn and uh, wanting to develop. Lifelong learners. That's what that's what we want here. Um, also, it's um, I'm surprised that uh, Brendan Rodgers tried to take some credit for something like that. There, it's, it's well, surprised. you know, it's, it's it's usually modest. Yeah, ever so, so humble. Uh, Kyogo finished it off by saying that he he didn't know what he was going to do in the future after playing, but he wants to co- contribute to society through his activities. What a, what a lovely young man he is! A lovely young man. Uh, and. Celtic's best striker. Your pants as well, probably. Yeah. So yeah. we have a, a few things that we want to touch on about Celtic, but before we get to uh, our new chairman of the board, uh, we've been linked with a few players, and I think you've been looking into into some of them. We've been linked, obviously, with uh, Mohammed, the attacking midfielder from Egypt. And you've also been looking at the kind of uh, stats behind the South Korean striker Cho, and you need to help me with the pronunciation of the Dutch guy playing in Poland. Is it Said? Um... So, so that was the name you needed to help with of all of those. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, Said Hamulich. There we go. That'll do. That'll do. So obviously, two of them are strikers. Two of them seem to be pretty similar in stature, at least. Uh, what do you see as being the similarities between them? Does from what you've what you've seen, does anything jump out? Is it, do you have a, an early preference between the two of them? Um, we can go jump into some of the details for both of them. But yeah, the, the first thing that did strike me, um, specifically on the size, that is. Kusum Chu and Hamulich. Uh, I'll work on that pronunciation, I promise. Is you know, they're tall. You know, that that's quite a riveting insight there. Um I haven't seen Hamulich uh, much at all in terms of actually striking, but you do you try not to reach a parallel between uh oh, you know, our big Greek striker is leaving. Here's a big South Korean striker. Here's a big Dutch striker. Um, but I, I think from from a stat perspective, I think um, Hamulich specifically is, you know, is is a lot less involved in terms of passing, for example. Um, 
he seems to be very much an, a penalty box striker. Um, it's not much, you know, interceptions or possession wins or tackles uh, as well. He, he seemed, and this is purely on the data so far, uh, I've seen it very much uh, a, a presence in the box. So I'd be interested to to kind of look him out a, a little bit more. I think it was true is obviously everybody's kind of seen him a lot at the World Cup. And I've had a chance to watch him a little bit more in, in terms of some footage. I think overall for me, he's still he's still a, a target man in the sense that yeah, I think he's got Decent technique, decent pace, um, but I also don't. He's definitely not kind of like a all round got all kind of striker. I, I think he is, for example, less mobile than than Kyogo. I, I think he's obviously not as fast. He's you know he's, he's as you've seen he he's got an aggressiveness about him. He he, he runs, but I think technically. Uh, I, I, I think I definitely kind of. I think Kyogo is, is is a level above in terms of that. You know, okay, Kyogo's technique isn't always the best, but I do see him. I don't really see him as a replacement for Kyogo from what I've seen now. You know, it, it doesn't strike me as a like for like. You know, I would say Taysomayeda is closer to Kyogo as a type of striker than Kosin Ju is. From what I've seen, you know, in the World Cup and some of the clips I've, I've watched him in in South Korean league as well. So for me, that kind of both, well, him and him Ulrich is slightly different players. Um, they do seem more like okay, GG is going. <laughs> we need to bring in somebody who is. Not Gigi specifically, but have some of those kind of attributes as well. And it's it's slightly different player to Kyogo slash Maeda. Is it is it fair to say that Cho in particular would be like a, a plan B that would not be ripping up your whole plan A? So he would be coming in as a different option, but closer to Kyogo than Gigi has ever been? Yeah, I, I think... I know this is very simplified and pedestrian in Celtic terms, but... He's probably somewhere in between a Kyogo and a Gigi, right? In in terms of what he can do and what his strengths are and what his his weaknesses are. And I think he's got he's got. I mean, he's. I think overall he he'll have a. I think it's slightly quicker than Gigi. I think he'll. It looks like he's got a bit of stamina on him. He's, he's got decent physical presence. As I said, he's, he's, he's decent with the ball. He likes, I think one of his, where I've kind of been a little bit, I mean, not frustrated, but one of the things that, that really pops out to me right away when you watch him and you look at his shot maps and you look at his shots on the video is that his shot selection is still, oh, needs a lot of work, I think. He's got, in, in terms of just look at it, you know, He's got 3.2 shots per 90 minutes played over or this league season, essentially, in Korea. If you compare that with strikers 
across the 35 leagues we have, that's in the top 6% in how many shots you take. But his expected goals, 0.30 per game, which is just below average. Right? So, so the, and if you look at his shot map, you see why, because he takes a lot of shots from quite far out. He takes a lot of shots from quite acute angles inside the box or on the side. So his, his average XG per shot is 0.10, which is low. That is low for a striker in terms of he takes lots of shots, but, you know. Bad, it's bad quality shots? Yeah, well, not even bad quality. The difficult, probably bad choices. Mm. I think when when he does strike it from range, you know, it's not... You get a couple. He's, I think it's two goals from outside the box this season in, in the league, and he can hit them. But it's just in some other situation he takes them. You know, it's it's not very good. But then you go, that is something you can simply coach. You know, that that is a very coachable thing to do. That. He's played very few games for for twenty four year old. Is more like twenty one year old. You think with the amount of games that he's played? Yeah, I mean it's. I guess you said you, you, it seems like you often get this in countries like Japan and South Korea. And he also just changed clubs in the summer. You know, he mm-hmm. changed gaining like, clubs in, in the summer. So he's got a, a huge rise. You know, obviously he's, he's at the Jeonbok uh, Hyundai. Obviously won the league last season, got second place this season. And so he's, he has stepped up to a big team now. He's obviously getting into South Korean team. And he had that game against Ghana. Um with this like two great finish. I mean the second finish is just awesome in terms of that kind of header. I mean it's <laughs> some some will say GG esque in, in terms of how it goes straight through the defenders there. Um but he obviously in terms of comparison GG's uh players hardly ever takes a shot from outside the box. Uh, it to do that he is probably a little bit kind of more mobile in terms of where he he receives the ball around that place uh, as well. He, he, he's happened to wander quite a bit outright as, as well, specifically. And his pass map is, you know, where he sends. I think he's kind of he is involved uh, a fair amount, but but I don't think he's some sort of all round complete striker. I think he's is is you know he doesn't have that huge acceleration and speed and. Everything that may become somebody who can play across the front tree, I think, is very much uh, yeah. I, I guess target man is is a target man who can play a little bit, you know. I I don't know if you know John uh, Carew, perhaps. <laughs> yes, imagine I'd love that, but he's, I mean, he's 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 a big man, Graham, and he's got good feet, Oof. right. So I don't know if you've heard uh, any sayings around that before, but I, I think that's a, a, a target man who can also play a little bit. I, I mean, I for for someone coming in at that age to compete for probably not much money, that is there's there's quite a lot of um, possibility from him. Though it seems like it seems as if he could be someone who could move yeah. on, push on. You do have to remember he's the device he's had, and I think. He, it's those kind of things like because when you first hear about him you think like oh Dortmund's after him you know he's just he's got two in the World Cup he looks ace and you go like oh, 
he's, 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 he want to play. You know, surely he, he would want to play in front of Kyogo. And uh, having looked at him, and as we say, like you kind of research his, his background and how much he's actually played. And okay, he's, he's 24. I mean, he'll be, he'll be 25 soon. So you go, oh, well, he wants to play, but you can all see a sense of he's, he can find a spot in that squad right now where he, he probably isn't the first choice striker, but that he'd play a lot. And that might actually suit them, especially for the first, say, six months, or even <laughs> even the first season, uh, if if he comes in the summer, that he's because he, I I think he would need some development. I think some development for him under Ange uh, at Celtic overall um, would be good, and to have still have Kyogo as you know the nominal first choice with with Drew coming, it's slight, slightly different player, but he's for me he would be as much of a Change, the change between Gyogo and Gigi. Well, well, they do try to do similar things. It, it is a very big difference in, in style. I think the difference in style here will be a lot less, but there is still a slight difference there, and he he will be able to do different things than than Gyogo can do as well. So, um, I, I think he, if you brought him in now, I don't see him as oh, you know, he's this big World Cup star who who needs to play every game or should play every game. I don't even really see it like that. I think he would be, at this point, if you say give him GG minutes so far, I, I think that could work out really well for, for Celtic and for him and <laughs> I guess also Kyogo, especially like say the first six, 12 months he's here. I'm talking like he's coming, if he's coming, <laughs> but in that hypothetical situation. Have I told you about the Lowland League? Christian, get him a few minutes in there. I think... He can't play in the lower league, but he can play in that Diddy Cup they play in, where because you can have some overage players there. Challenge Cup, so, there you go. Yes, there you go. I went to the nineteen ninety five Challenge Cup final, by the way. Stan has moved on to the United. So fancy boy, it. aren't you? You're just uh-huh. a wee fancy boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other guy, uh, Said, he he looks very much to me like a GG, and he looks to me from what you've said as if he's like outperforming his XG quite a bit. Is is this like a one season wonder at the moment, or is he someone that you think could actually have potential to be a good pinout box striker for us? Well, I'd, I'd focused on our friend Chu and our other new friends we're going to come to soon. Is is I'm quite intrigued by. So. I haven't really had the time to research him much, our friend Said, but I got a really interesting kind of career path for him because he was he was he was playing in the the Lithuanian league um, last season, actually two last season, but he actually got a move to Sudova, which um, pretty sure Celtic faced. I'm just making that up. The road to Seville that was the first team we beat. That was wasn't that, and. He he went to them from another Lithuanian club uh, at the start of last so start of the twenty twenty two season, but then in this already in the summer he went to Poland. So again, scored plenty of goals in in Lithuania. He started really well in, in Poland as well. And yeah, you're right in terms of his like his actually stats. Okay, he's he's on, on goals. He's got nine. Um, non-penalty goals so far in the league in Poland that puts him in the top 5% of strikers in the 35 leagues but he is he's overperforming somewhat he's, he's 0.35 XG per 90 so he's got a 
about 5.2 XG. He's got nine goals. So, but even, I mean, his XG per game is still not bad. I mean, it's, it's higher than Chu's in, in Korea, for example. He's, he's taking three shots uh, per game. But again, he is somebody who's got an average XG per shot of 0.11. And yeah, he takes a few shots from outside the box. Um, he's got a few headers in there as well in, in terms of that. So, but yeah, he's in terms of passes per game, he's, he's got 9.6 passes per game, which is, it's in the bottom percentage, right? Of, of the whole of all the 900 strikers we have in this database. But I mean, that, that doesn't really, it, you can still play. I mean, Kyogo has has very few passes uh, per game. Alan Holland has usually very few passes. Well, it's all kind of about your the playing style within that. Um, mm-hmm. For example, but it, and you expect in a team like Celtic, you will get more passes anyway. For I mean, for example, last season Kyogo had twenty one and a half passes um, per ninety. Gigi had uh, let me see thirteen point nine. So it it, it kind of depends on the style and all that, but yeah, that doesn't have to be a terribly bad thing because, as I say, you know, often we think about Kyogo as more of an all-around striker, but he he can be less involved in the actual passes as well. He's involved, he's he's affecting the game in other ways. But yeah, it it does seem like on on first stats-wise, anyway, very much a more an out of out and out target man, um, other than Chu, who seems a bit more all round. But yeah, he's uh, again, he is he, interesting in terms that I, I, we really want to see him more because tell you what, loves a triple mm-hmm. for someone that tall. He's in the top eleven percent in terms of how many dribbles a striker does, and in terms of actually how many he completes. Is in the top three um, percent, and, and dribbles. I mean, strikers do not are not known for, for dribbling a, a lot, obviously. But um, but it's interesting how even in terms of like aerial challenges and stuff like that, it's like below average in terms of how many he, he actually goes for. As I said, his interceptions, his his tackles, and how many he does with that, and very low. I mean, you know, in terms of he's in the bottom one percentage of interceptions. Is in the bottom two percentage of, you know, winning the possession and opposition half is in the bottom seventeen percent and how many tackles he does. So, um, again, I'm, I've only had a look at him today. I haven't actually seen him play yet. So, it's probably some, <laughs> if these kind of rumors uh, intensifies, we can have a, a closer look at him in terms of actually his playing style and, and, and come back to that maybe next week if if those kind of rumors are still there. But yeah, it's but both of them, both those strikers for me, doesn't scream. You know, get Kyogo out today and get a first choice striker. It, it kind of seems more like Gigi leaving preparation than anything mm. else. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think both of them are interesting. Just what you said there, it just paints a picture of someone who just waits about for the ball to come to his feet and then he starts dribbling with it. <laughs> uh, which is just a you bizarre. Just hate kind of... him at five aside, wouldn't you? Yeah, yes. yeah. I'm that. I am that guy at five aside. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but is there something innate about the way that Celtic? would be playing because obviously we'll be playing against teams that are sitting so far back that would stop 
a player like th- th- these two from having shots shots from range because they're maybe receiving the ball a lot closer to goal than they would be for the current teams, if that makes sense. I see what I mean in terms of thinking, okay, I've, I've, maybe I don't get that many chances here and I need to have a shoot. But I, I mean, they, they both, as I said, have over three shots per 90, which maybe doesn't sound a lot, but it is both in the top 10% of all the strikers and this kind of database, which is like 35 leagues, 900 strikers. So it's not that they're, they need to shoot from there, otherwise they'll never be able to shoot, especially Chu, who I think is very keen on taking those shots. So I, I think you would, now that the only thing, obviously, other ones is like you're facing a low block, yeah, maybe, but what often happens in a low block if some players get frustrated is they take a shot from distance. Right, so Ryan Christie, uh, yeah, um, yeah, you can pick anyone to be honest. Um, so I think there is a case of just essentially that needs to be coached after them, right? Because I, I think Celtic has overall, especially this season, and especially you know, compared to Lens season, their average chance quality has an XG per shot. It's improving, it's improving, it's getting higher and higher, it's getting higher and higher this season as well. And I think there is less and less of those kind of pop shots. And I think there is a lot more of a patience in the build-up to at least try and find the better quality. Now, I hadn't watched Hamulic. Yeah, I think I probably pronounced his name in seven different ways. I will work on that. But in terms of specifically true, like there's so many times just if you go through just his shots and these kind of like video databases that you go, oh come on, mate! Right, you know, Anthony Stokes. You, you, you need you need to you need to pass it. You need to have a bit more patience, and I think that is a very coachable thing. You basically just actually stare him down and tell him how to do it. So you know, but it's that kind of tells me he's like, there's a development there that needs to happen because you can't take shots like that at Celtic. So Afsha, we have spoken about him before. Uh, on the transfer committee, you've now had the chance to look at him. And from what you've said, it sounds to me as if he's like a small, immobile Rui Costa. Because one of, one of the videos I you said... I have said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you said he was immobile and I'm just adding a small because I saw his height and the fact that he's Rui Costa from the video that you sent me of him like putting the ball through the eye of a needle. Uh, this doesn't sound like someone that can play in any of the Ange positions that we have. I don't I don't understand the signing. Like, it sounds like a, a number 10 when we don't play number 10s. So, yeah. I, th- I think the good news for, for Hafshire is that the more I watch, the more intrigued I am. And, and we kind of talked about him. I'm, I'm going to steal you. I mean, you, you called him blue ball like it's mm. essentially the egyptian blue ball and you've obviously watched blue ball a lot more than me but what i've seen you know <laughs> it's it's not a terrible comparison <laughs> like in terms of them people are gonna say oh he called him a new label it's, it's not that but it's more the sense of you have somebody who's i mean let's start with his stature because i think you know not to go gordon strachan right and uh, I, I think you, you get a long way. You don't need to be tall. You need to be, you know, a physical presence to, to be really good. That is obvious, you know, in, in terms of that. But he is small, 
six, he, I think. Yeah, oh, 168 centimeters. So do do the math. Yeah, but so I think that's fine. I mean, you, you need strength if you, you want to make an impact on Champions League level. I think you you really need speed as well. I think he has, from what I've seen so far, I don't think he's that five aside player. You know that we just just said that he needs, you know, who can dribble somebody in a, in a phone box, phone box, but. Um, but he won't move out of the phone box. It's not that. He does seem to have a bit more in terms of just speed and stamina about him. Um, although, you know, some of the footage from later on in games, he looks a bit tired, to be fair. But it, it, I think there is so far, you can maybe look at Istra Christian about his physicality to impact high intensity games over 90 minutes. And okay, I'll cop out a little bit and say I, I have to see him a bit more. But I think that is kind of like a fair question, right? That kind of physicality. What should you do need? Like, especially if we talk about, we'll talk about like kind of what kind of player is, because there's not really a number 10 role in, in the Celtic team. So you're looking at either probably a number eight position, like the most advanced one, or maybe starting a little bit wider than coming in. But you need you need the physicality, you need the stamina anyway. And does he have that? And not just because just of his stature, but, but is he is he strong enough? And he, does he have the stamina? So I think that is a question mark so far. Put that to one side, though. I mean, he is fun to watch, right? He is. Um, some will say a delight. It, it, I mean, you'll struggle to find a more technically gifted player uh, than Asha. Like he is. So competent on the ball, like his his touch, um, is is passing. As you said, you know, I've showed you a clip in terms of quite mad passes. Yeah, in terms of that, and but as you say, like if you look at his heat map where he takes the passes from, where he creates from, like it screams number ten, doesn't it? In terms yep. of you know his heat map and everything, so. You watch him play, and he, he does drop a little bit. He plays kind of like a little bit in the half spaces. He comes and picks up the ball. He, he kind of, as you can see, his heat maps. He's also like like each edge of the penalty box, you know. So it's not he's stationary there. But if if you look at him and you think, like, what kind of player is this? You go, well, he's attacking midfielder. He's a, he's a central attacking midfielder. So, but then again, like in terms of interception, especially how many sessions he wins in opposition half, like it's pretty decent stats, right? And he's on the ball a lot, you know, in terms of top three percent. He's very secure on the ball, as you say. He doesn't dribble too much either, so it's not like he, you know, um, has to. He moves the ball more with passes uh, than, than than any dribbles. So, it, so he's <laughs> such a interesting link in that his is literally his, his his position doesn't seem to fit into the system and there is obvious i think questions about you know his his physique how he not i mean he's he's, he's dominating in, in the egyptian league and he's you know he's he's played you know if he's played games for egypt he's Played in the African Champions League, so it's it's not like he's you know, 
I hope to. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he, he can, it, but I guess we kind of got this image of an Ange midfielder that they need to have a bit of everything, but they also need to have physique because one of my, I guess, questions mark over Aaron Moy is that, that that is a player who has a lot of technique, but it is his speed and his his, his stamina and his, his his accelerations, you know, is and also but also maybe a little bit speed of you know moving the ball quickly mm. as well. So you go like, well, are you bringing somebody similar to that? And I, I think, yeah, I wouldn't make the Aaron Moy comparison. I well, they're completely different physically. I don't think Tom Rogic is a bad comparison if you want to try and bring a Celtic player into this. That's, that's somebody who's. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask: Is it possible that because obviously Tam played under Ange as a kind of mm-hmm. eight, eight slash ten? Yeah, and absolutely. Is that possible? Like, would you would you think that this player could come in? Just say we're playing Ibrox, and we're, we get Cal McGregor, Rio Hatate, and. Can you see Afshay being that third central midfielder playing like an eight ten role? Would you think that would be something that could happen? I think by Tom Rodrigue doing it for so long and actually so well, you kind of go, ah, maybe he could because this is a guy who's I'd say as technical. He's got a fantastic passing range, and he's he's not he's not slow, and he's he. he he does move about, and he's he, in in terms of his, his defensive play. Okay, it's, it's it's hard to say, but he is as I say, he wins the ball, and the opposition's half a lot. Okay, I mean, El Ali will be in the opposition's half a lot because they're one of the best team in Egypt. But he he is really intrigued. I I thought I was going to go into this saying, "What's going on?" Surely not. Like this guy. I mean, he is. 26 as well, and he's never played out of Egypt. And you kind of go, ah, you know, you know, and he's, you know, he's, he's a bit small. And you can, as you said, you, you maybe leap the conclusion that he's just like your slightly, um, not overweight five aside player who's a blame technique. Um, you actually, uh, I, I can't just get afraid. Uh, Away from the fact that I'm watching play, like it really intrigues me, and just because it is, it is difficult when you just watch the Egyptian league. Because I always haven't watched Egyptian league hardly anything. That kind of frame of reference. Call yourself a football uh, fan. I know exactly. Um, that frame of reference is, is how, how good is the opposition? How good is it, uh, specifically? But you can't, people could have made that accusation against the J League and stuff like that. It's, mm-hmm. So there's one of the best teams in Egypt is one of the best leagues in in Africa. And I know that much. And to get into the Egyptian team, that is a really good Egyptian national team as well. And if you watch Egyptian, like the, the little I've seen as well, is it looks pretty system-wise. It looks pretty coherent, tactically mm. organized and so on. So it's not like a complete free-for-all or anything like that. I, 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 I can kind of help but being slightly intrigued. And if this is kind of, a Tom Rodrick replacement, which, to be honest, I think Celtic needs, or at least I think that is there is a Tom Rodrick sized hole in the Celtic squad. I thought that was going to be filled in the summer. It hasn't. Now, Afshad's not literally going to fill it because he's about five, six, seven inches smaller than him. But <laughs> in terms of what he can actually do on the pitch, it's not, as I say, I, I can't there's, help but kind of like him. 
there's a lot of Scottish games where you just need someone to open open a door. Like it's you're you're just banging your head against the door for a long time, and he sounds like the kind of player that would be I, your St. Johnson at home. But, you know what I mean? but even more, I mean, in a way, Aaron Moy can do that in, in the sense of like against Hibs. Like it's you need to be able to do it. I think you need everything else as well. Like you need to be able to to move to have an intensity in everything you do. And but I'm still there is a question about if if Asher can do that for 90 minutes, right? But I also he kind of watching him, and maybe this is where like the the stature thing creeps in, and you kind of make this comparison unconsciously because of but don't think he's you can kind of remind you a little bit of Haksabanovich in the in the way he, he moves to, to how good he is on the ball and so I think well it doesn't look like Rochiki brings a lot of the, the things he do but if you imagine Haksabanovich in the eight and what he does there you can kind of see Afsha as, as a bit similar similar to that maybe even just more not as intense not maybe not as direct maybe a, you know Slightly better technique, maybe, mm. but I, I think somewhere kind of Haksabanovich, Rodge, kind of number eight. I think what you're kind of looking at here, if, if you were to bring him in. So I don't know if you want to reveal the source, but we, well, you've heard from sources that Celtic are focusing a lot of their scouting on Africa, the Middle East, and Asia for this window and for the next window as well. What do, what do you make of that that plan? Do you think that's a sensible thing for the club to be doing, given the kind of markets involved and the amount of money is involved for transfers. I mean, if we can sign or be linked with like the best player at the best team in Egypt for only three million pounds or something like that, then obviously it's like it's a place I mean, that we might want to tap. It was actually Anthony Joseph that, that tweeted that. So yeah, it's, it's not much of a secret. But I thought I thought it was a DM. <laughs> oh, maybe that as well. But um, so, so yeah, I, I think. That's what we want, isn't it? You know, don't leave any stone unturned in, in terms of this. You know, and yeah, we talked a lot about like, the Asian market in terms of Japan, South Korea, to go to you know places like this, North America, Central South America, where we always talked about on the transfer committee. You and Kieran talked about kind of Celtic's place in this kind of weird ecosystem of, of world football and that. They have a huge name, huge stadium, fantastic history, but to play in the Scottish League and don't actually have, you know, they need to be aware of their place, but use their place in this kind of weird ecosystem to the best of their ability. And I think that involves um, a lot of a lot of different things. It involves Superb Youth Academy, for example, and and being able to trust youth but I think you just have to go out and try and find that value for money and when I say value for money I mean really exceptional players or players who can be exceptional at a price you wouldn't be able to pay for them you wouldn't be able to to get them for if they were in, in the markets maybe Celtic have been in before so and that that might come with Players like Afsha is a good example because okay, he's twenty six. He's never played outside Egypt. Does it fit into the system? And maybe none of them are a perfect fit. But you also go <laughs> when you look at them. Maybe he's maybe he's that kind of slightly outside the box um, 
not risky, but it's it's a bit more unknown. And you, you, if you can move it and kind of bring in those type of players for will be a lot less money, but they still have enormous talent. And I guess that kind of way the the, the Lubu Lubu um Lubu comparison co- comes in as well. Obviously, okay, it wasn't well known in in Scotland. He, you know, he's, he's quite old by the time he, in football terms, in the time he comes to. But you bring him in, but you bring in this kind of exceptional talent, and it, and I think that's kind of where the comparison comes with that. Okay, maybe on the surface it doesn't make sense in theory, but if it comes and it works, it'll work like you know, it can blow you away. Mm. Lubu, incidentally, was. Uh from the video game Dynasty Warriors. So the connection there. I don't get that. Chinese it's a Chinese Chinese okay. warrior. But okay. so one one thing I was thinking about, I just don't know how much of a thing this actually is. I remember when Dick Avocat was uh, the manager of Rangers and they, they spoke about how the amount of Dutch players was starting to make a kind of little toxic kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a toxic Click. Click in in the Rangers dressing room. Obviously, we now have five Japanese players, and we're being linked with a, a South Korean player. Is is there anything in that? Do you think is there anything that would maybe create a kind of a, 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 a not not a toxic environment, but an environment that maybe is not what Celtic would be looking for? Oh well, they don't talk to each other. It seems like yeah. So <laughs> and I think you always have to balance. Yeah, even, even, I think it comes from the dressing room itself, right? It, it needs to be a, a, like a two-way kind of thing because even if you have four or five players from a specific country, you know, and it's you know very different language, you know, the, as you say, like a, the societal norms will be you know, very different. But if you have a type of dressing room anyway that has that kind of it's the word I'm looking like the inclusivity or it's it's driven by us, you know, the captain and the leaders in that room is is very aware of integrating players. I, I think it comes back emotional to emotional intelligence kind of thing. Yeah, I, I mean cliques starts, I think, if you know, it's all cliques can be often be from from top down as well, and, and other cliques can form because of some part of the place is not feeling like it's easy to integrate. So, so I think I think with that, yes, you need to have a specific focus on integrating the inclusivity. But I think it's it's the leaders of that dressing room, it's it's the coaches that that kind of sets that standards anyway. And I think I think that. I think though that is not just a thing of saying, oh, here's five Japanese players. You'll have different types of people in a dressing room. And they can both be from Glasgow and they can be completely different people and they will need to have their emotional, I guess, intelligence, their their, their interest, their personalities can be completely different. And, and cliques are not just based on where you're from and, you know, a country and so on. And maybe they're even more based on personalities. So, but even within that, you need to be a collective. You need to have focus on that collective. So, I think obviously winning games and having success always helps on that. But I think if 
the dressing room and is focused on integration on, on that collective. I, I think it's an easier uh, thing to do. I think it maybe stuff like that is very much from the outside sometimes. If things start not going well, you, you start to look for a reason. Theories. I mean, you, you got to switch, you know, when Celtic start to struggle as well in terms of, oh, is this, you know, is, is it the French? A delegation, delegation, and the French-speaking ones, and and so on. So I think then you maybe start looking for those kind of things. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's, you know, it's McGregor as the captain, and and the delegation is kind of set that standards. That I think it seems like they are very focused on that that integration part, um, which is good. And I think it, so to jump in as well. I think that has a lot to do with how how we're Celtic handling this. Uh, outside the pitch kind of support for those kind of players mm. as well. You know, in terms of part of that integration, I think will help if you're able to set those kind of players up so they're not isolated. Mm. And even though we have five different Japanese players, they have very different experiences of coming over here and, and, and dealing with that. So if you have a system in place off the pitch, that everything is taken care of. Maybe actually encouraging, you know, social I was going to say activities, but you know, you know, we have okay, it's the pandemic played in a lot, but I think it's a lot of players who can feel isolated in a new country, and they start doing cliques because at least that's a that's a sense of home, mm-hmm. and it's it's almost like a, a homesickness kind of thing. But whereas you, you, if you feel comfortable in your environment, if if you enjoy that new environment, you actually might be want to go out and experience a bit and not stay within, you know. So. It, that's what we talked about. It'd be going to a new university or something like that. If, if in another country, if, if you feel comfortable, you actually want to go, you know, you know I guess experience uh, what's happening in that country, not just staying in your own clique. So. Yeah, you want you wanted to to get jiggy with some Scottish birds. Just admit it. Just admit it. Um, well, I. Um... Had a good freshers week, I guess. Is that what you want me to say? I don't, I don't know. It's, I just wanted you to say something to get away from the fact that I said jiggy with it. <laughs> I've got all birds. So, <laughs> so um, we're running out of time uh, before we talk about some World Cup stuff. So I'm not going to spend, and I don't want to speak about him for too long, too long anyway, because I hate him. I hate his stupid face. And that is Peter Lawwell. We're getting some Peter Lawwell washing in yes. the media at the moment. Yes. Um, uh, Keith Jackson article basically saying that he, he was all it was all his doing getting Ange and we should be bow down and grateful to Peter Lawwell uh, for that he also said he had a, a he had a meeting with Lawwell where uh, Lawwell was in a bad mood and he apparently said what you have to realise is we'll be hammered if we don't win the 10 uh, or what's to that effect Keith says and uh, it's quite surprising they had that attitude and had that belief and then kept Neil Francis Lennon in charge <laughs> for for so long. So yeah, that's that's Lowell and this this week's this Monday's uh, Keith Jackson article is all about supporting poor old Peter Lowell. So there you have it. You can read it yourself because I'm not going to be reading it out anymore. Let's talk World Cup, uh, Christian. We we don't have much off field stuff to talk about. Well, we've got a few different things. So we have the Italian pitch invader who had the the rainbow flag. Right. He revealed that Infantino personally busted him out of a Qatari nice. police station at four o'clock in the morning, which is just utterly bizarre. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe that was some kind of ginger uh, penance or something Infantino was, was paying. Somebody feels a bit guilty. 
Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. We also obviously had the asshole, I mean, um, Arsene Wenger, mm-hmm. um, saying that Germany lost its focus by having a couple of seconds of holding their hands to their mouths, yes. despite the fact that Germany basically, from an underlying stats point of view, were the best performing team in the group stages. Is that right? Am I right in saying that? I'll take your word for it, nerd. But yeah, yeah, yeah. no, they, 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 they did have a good stats. Yeah, so, yeah, we can, uh, again, it was spoken about an agenda, we're not going to say too much, because he's just a dinosaur, he's been a dinosaur for years, he's a guy that was talking about not wanting a director of football, because he was a director of football, so he just obviously has no kind of awareness of modern football, and he wants the World Cup to happen every two years, so yeah, he can just fuck off, to be honest. Um before we get on to actual games, the other thing that you flagged up was a Tim Cahill interview. So tell us about Tim Cahill and his kind of like clash of interests, we can, well, we can well, say. I think there's, there's a link with Arsene Wenger there, right? And and the one is, well, Wenger is like, I guess, the stereotype, like if you, know, if you get old enough, uh, a lot of people just get... <laughs> I don't know if I should continue that, but... Um, <laughs> Well, the thing with Arsenal, he he is FIFA's chief of global football development, which seems to indicate that the World Cup should be every two years. So, I, I think, and the, but the parallel with, I think, especially Tim Cahill there. So, so the thing about Tim Cahill that I kind of sent you to this as well. So there was uh, a tweet by. Uh, Australian uh, broadcast journalist Ben Lewis, and they had a clip of him before the World Cup, where he's had an interview with with Cahill. And, you know, he's he asked him a couple of questions about the World Cup, but then when he tried to ask him about if he supported the, the Socceroos human rights video that they did um, before the World Cup, he's just um, his PR person kind of just took him away. You know, he didn't want to enter it and so on. And but then they were told repeatedly that by Football Australia, you know, the kind of Australian Football Association, that he'd, he'd be happy to speak later in the week. He wasn't trying to avoid any questions, but he scheduled press conferences, cancelled a short notice, and he really never answered questions about, you know, Socrates human rights or anything around that. And the reason why that's kind of interesting is that as this journalist says, he is is Kim Cahill wears multiple hats. So he's head of delegation for the Socrates in Qatar, but he's also the chief sports officer at the Spire Center, the, the football kind of academy think tank in Qatar. And he's he's a Qatar legacy ambassador. So I think we talked a lot about, you know, you've had people like Hugo Lloris, um, that Welsh manager who I care a little about. I forgot his name, uh, top of my head. That, Popeich. yeah, well, well, it's up to him, what he wants to, I guess. But about, about people who they're not in any, they don't need to defend Qatari or defend FIFA in any way, but they they kind of ended up saying stupid things. You know, respect the culture. You know, Germany, blah blah blah. But you do forget that. So, and I think that's part of sports washing, like indirectly sports washing, in terms of oh, it's the World Cup. You know, it's, it's talk about football. 
And don't ask questions because this is just about the football where when Qatari going for the World Cup, it's hardly anything to do with football. Nothing to do with football at <laughs> all. Oh, Saudi Arabia buying Newcastle has nothing to do with football. You know, um, Abu Dhabi um, based owners buying Manchester City. It's got anything to do with football? No, it doesn't have to do anything with football. So, so that's part of the washing, but that they do these things not to do with football, but you kind of the sports washing is that it, it enhances their reputation and kind of quells its critical questions. Now we've talked about before that it, the Qataris probably wouldn't want this World Cup up until now because there've been so many questions asked about them. But there's the other side of that is that more the direct sports washing because if you're Arsene Wenger and you've FIFA's chief of global football development, you also get somebody with a huge name, essentially a spokesperson for yourself. And when people kind of know he's involved in FIFA, they don't see him as FIFA. So you get people like him who come out and criticize Germany for, I mean, uh, doing uh, at least the bare minuscule of, of, of a decent human thing. Then you got people like Tim Cahill, which is an example of he's hired the Qataraji government. And that's not, I mean, Savvy, Xavi was there. Uh, for a long while, there's other players as well, but it kind of goes to see you can buy a silence as well, and you can buy that PR not by commercials or adverts, but by hiring people like Tim Cahill. Sure, he paid handsomely, but he's a big name, and he's he'll, he'll, he'll portray an image, and he won't criticize. So I think the more you do that, that's how sports washing works, and it works different people in different ways and it works with, on essentially with Arsene Wenger in the role of FIFA because it works directly with people like Tim Cahill. Yeah, basically paying someone for the silence, essentially. Yeah, essentially. Or giving an image of, you know, that here's what we're doing in Qatar, this is a positive image and being that. And it, I mean, is that a different to, to people who do huge business in, in Qatar and, you know, spokespeople for big multinationals who makes a lot of money uh, for that. It's different to the British government who uh, make a lot of money selling weapons, to, for example, like Saudi Arabia or did. No, it's not. But it's also, it's you know, as you said, it's not football. It's not just football because this is how it works in football as well. And we're going to be, uh, hopefully next week, if we can, be talking to someone from Spirit of Shankly about... The possibility of, I mean, we you, you you feared there was going to be a Saudi ownership, Christian of Liverpool. You feared there'd be Qatari ownership, but you you weren't kind of expecting the Qatari Saudi joint venture. Yes, the the, the axis of yeah, um, oh yeah, it's, it's highly depressing, isn't it? Um, it it's, it's that's the thing. It comes to a point where. These clubs are so expensive that that who's actually going to be able to afford them? Three billion or something? I thought. Ah, uh, yeah, it's, it's if, for the, for the whole club. Yeah, that's uh, probably worth looking at. So it would be awfully depressing. I, I I honestly couldn't tell you my reaction. If it, I, I think I would detach a lot from the club if that mm-hmm. happens. Um, like a part of you, you always follow it, have feelings for it, but it's, I think it would create. Something different, there, absolutely, and that you know, you own by a, as I said before, a US hedge fund, a hyper capitalist. So it's not exactly you know, Sam Pauli mm. at the moment, but yeah, it's 
the thing we, we might be able to talk about next week is, you know, what's the Liverpool fans' role in this? You know, because they've done a lot of interesting thing around the supporter sport and, and so on, and that whether they have kind of engagement, what kind of say they might have in this, and kind of compared as we tried to do before with a similar situation at Celtic. And maybe they'll have to go into it a lot. Maybe that's a good thing topic for maybe next week is that it's not outside the realm of possibility that this might happen to Celtic at some point as well. Mm. I think that's when you get the real test of how how strong are you, I guess, your morals in a, in, in a way. And it's, it's as we talked with Kristen Hennigis before, like the Newcastle fan, is that it's easy to say this. That I know it's completely unacceptable. I won't go to Celtic Park. I'll just do it. But it's so much easier said than done when yeah. it comes to it as well. So, yeah, it's. Um, but I, I did see see that there was actually some German investors uh, circling around Liverpool. As well. I don't know what kind of these German investors are. I didn't know there was that much money in Germany. But uh, so. it's me, Christian. It's, it's me. me. I'm the problem. Consult him. We're going to do it. A Wolf McKay consultant. You heard it here first. Bring bring uh, Mark Lowell down as well. So, yeah. So just before we move on, there was a a breaking story on the Daily Record uh, website with Martin O'Neill. Obviously, he's been going about getting interviewed in lots of places to promote his book. And he has revealed basically the, the primary demand that Dermot Desmond has on managers. And that is to... He said to Martin O'Neill, I want you to take ownership of the football club. By that, he meant run the football club as he might have one of his business managers doing something for him, essentially working top to bottom, making every decision in the football club. (laughs) (sighs) Something to cheer us up at this this stage of the night. I mean, talk about, um, you know... um, (laughs) Water being wet, um, yeah, and and I think the only it, it makes sense because the only other person then who has any input is Dermot Desmond, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is, this comes back to the whole thing. I, I think you know Dermot Desmond wants do not want to give away any sort of proper control of this club at all, and I think having the managers top to bottom is is. Uh, a way of that because it's it's such a, a, a terrible way to run a football club really but as, as you saw with Domakai coming in as well and, and talking about what he wanted to do and so on and by the mere fact that there isn't anybody who's called him what they want, technical director director of football anything that there isn't a role there that has the responsibility for football operations it's the first team coach. It's essentially the first team coach that should run that from top to bottom. And I think overall, that's kind of how it, how it works. And I think that's why it works to a certain degree when the manager is, is really good and they are holistic and they, and they have knowledge in a lot of different areas. But it really, really doesn't work when it doesn't work. Um, so I'm not surprised at all uh, that that goes all the way back to to, to O'Neill, and it's it's probably still there, and yeah. it's going to be like that until Desmond, you know, well, as long as he's there. So I want to tap into your goalkeeping knowledge. Yes. So we've got a couple of goalkeeping stories uh, this week. 
first of all, there was the drama when uh, Matt Ryan, who had been dropped at Copenhagen a while back, uh, replaced by the number one who was the number one before Matt Ryan came in and he was injured when Matt Ryan, Ryan signed and that was Camille Gr- Grabara. And um, Matt Ryan at the time essentially applied it was uh, political that he was being dropped and uh, Camille Gabara was getting his number one jersey back. Matt Ryan dropped an absolute clanger for Australia and his teammate, <laughs> his brother in arms, tweeted, it must have been politics for sure, and then like a snarky smiley face. Uh, also, just off the, the heels of the Croatia-Japan um, penalty shootout, there was a tweet about how Livkovic, or Livakovic had saved like more than he should have in the penalty shootout. And in, in contrast, the, the Japan goalkeeper sh- saved less than he should have because uh, Japan's penalties were actually better taken penalties than the Croatian one. It just so happened that the Croatian goalkeeper was having a world day. So first of all, have you ever experienced, because goalkeeping is a very specific position in that you've got only one position and you've got two, sometimes three professionals going for that one position. And there's a goalkeeper union, etc. But of course, everyone wants to be the number one. They want to be the one in charge. Have you ever experienced anything that's so toxic as two teammates, basically, or one teammate riding the other on, on Twitter after the other one has been knocked out of the World Cup? <laughs> Uh, and also, what penalty shootouts? I saw people re- replying to this this tweet, basically asking if it's just luck. Then guessing correctly, what is it about uh, Livkovic that? Why is he good at them, and why is someone? I'm just going to pick a, a random goalkeeper, Craig Gordon, atrocious mm-hmm. at penalties. Like, what is it? What is it about a goalkeeper that makes him a good penalty goalkeeper? A lot of questions there, Graham. Yeah, um, that's that's the way I like it. I think this is start to the end. It's, I mean, there's thesis in this, to be honest. I think from from my own very limited, well, not limited experience, I have a lot of experience, not just very good experience, um, in terms of a goalkeeper facing a penalty. I think there's always that, that case of, and maybe this is what, kind of unconscious thing with goalkeepers as well that they always seem to go too early for for penalties and it's kind of something that when do you ever see a goalkeeper going the wrong way on any other shots than a penalty right you don't see that much you know from from a free kick or even a a finish you're just diving the wrong way i mean i mean look maybe occasionally but there is a sense that to save a penalty, you just have to guess. And I I don't think that's the case. And and I think in, in terms of I think where all these kind of so so the tweet we're referring to is from John Harrison. You know, uh we had John on the pod at the start of, of last season actually. And I honestly think he is the best kind of goalkeeping analysis you know um analyst out there in terms of he's, he's built lots of his own models and he's he's, he's got a really intuitive understanding he's got, he does really really good work but, but obviously in, in terms of penalty specifically in terms of your probability of saving a, a penalty i think you're better off 
waiting as long as possible as a goalkeeper. And yeah, you can try and judge where the shot is going to go by, you know, the, you know, the body shapes and all that. And, you know, you, you have all the goalkeepers now will have a list of, you know, where players prefer to shoot and so on. But but it's, it's such a game of chess, you know, because players take the penalties, will react to this and they'll find new ways. So for me, it's always been a case of waiting as long as possible and maybe even waiting to see where the shot goes or waiting to the very, very, very last second and then make a decision. It's better because I think you, I think it's more chance of unsettling the striker. You don't give them, you know, because the players are so good now that if, if you go split second early, a lot of them have a run up and a, a presence and a technique to look at you and then put the goal. Other, I mean, Tonev, uh, uh, Brentford is, is amazing at this. So I think you wait and see because see if it's in the top corner or it's right down at the uh, at the you know edge of the post and drilled hard. You're not going to save it anyway. Pretty much, how much you got? So no, uh, I mean no I, one predicts, no one guesses, and then throws them throws himself full force at the top corner like yeah. that, and you never see that from a goalkeeper. So for me, I think you have a bigger probability of just waiting as long as possible, and. If the penalty is slightly off, you have such a much better chance of shooting. So uh, the, the really thing, I, uh, the thing I hate when I watch penalty shootouts is looking at goalkeepers who keep going the wrong way again and again and again. And it's like just just stand there, and not just stand there, but you still have you still have like twelve yards to react on. The, the one thing I always found when I was goalkeeper is that I, I went too early. I thought I didn't have much time. I didn't move my legs enough. But if I had the, the coolness and just to wait, see where the shot goes and then react. Because, I mean, mate, it is literally your job to react in split seconds and move your body based mm. on really, really quick information. And you do that for headers, close headers, close finishes, for really hard shot inside your own box. I think you try and apply some of those kind of principles. To, to a penalty save as well. It's, 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 I, I was terrible for it. I always went too early. And I seem to pick the wrong way as well. So, But it, I, I think that's what you do. And I think that's kind of... And a lot of it is kind of placed... It's an outcome-based kind of study of it as well. Because what John is essentially saying that is based on where the creation penalties were, were placed in the goal and the, the, the speed of the shots, he would expect... Like a bit two and a half goals scored from those four creation penalties, they scored three, and from the Japanese penalties, those four penalties, you expect to score three of them. So, it, it, I mean, it was, it was a really good goalkeeping by Livakovic, but I think it's on the other side, it's you know, the, the goalkeeping of a Japanese goalkeeper is he going too early? Is he, you know. And I, don't, I think he went to the right way a couple of times as well. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot to, to be said for just, just stand there as long as possible and don't go in the wrong way, essentially. 
your tip to goalies yeah, stand as long as possible. That's my TED talk on goalies. <laughs> and what do, what do you make of the the Copenhagen Copenhagen goalkeeper? Feud? I mean, this, this is a story I wouldn't really have come across as as not being from following various Australian uh, journalists uh, on Twitter now, but it's yeah. But I think it was a few times, but my jaw kind of dropped when I saw the tweet and then read about it. So as you say, like. Um, Camille Grabara, who's who was to Copenhagen um, first choice goalkeeper, obviously, obviously last season. I- interesting uh, background because he was actually a, a youth player uh, at Liverpool. Um, I think he got one. He actually got one game in the the World Championship uh, <laughs> after the Winter Champions League as well. But he's he he played on loan a little bit at Huddersfield as well. But he went to Denmark. And he's, he's still a pretty young goalkeeper as well. That's the thing. He's 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 twenty three. And as you said, you basically gave the story there. There was an interview with Matt Ryan that it came before the World Cup. That um, you know, Matt Ryan was brought in because at the start of this Danish season, Grabala got injured. Uh, came in, played ten games, and then in an interview, pretty much when he was, he, he was fully fit, he publicly said that he demanded his number one spot back. You know, it should be mine. I don't care. He's coming. You know, I'm fit. I'm going to play. I'm the number one. And that was what happened. Grabala got got put in again, and <laughs> and Matt Ryan was, was on the bench. Always, Matt Ryan was because a lot of people said, "What's happened to Matt Ryan? His second choice at Copenhagen." Um. um before this, so obviously he, he played all through August and September. Then October came around. It's, you know, Grabala came back in, and as I say, this kind of the interview with Matt Ryan is really interesting because it's like, oh, you know, Copenhagen is is great. You know, I cycle to training. I really like it here. You know, it's a nice club. And, it, and I, I'm paraphrasing it. It's just that the goalie is a bit of a dick. <laughs> Essentially, the thing is, he's never really experienced this kind of frosty relationship. Between a goalkeeping colleague, and so it's like you know, they're still civil, you know, to give each other, you know, good save and stuff like that. But it's, it's never the airs, as you said, the airs usually something. The goalkeeping union is is true because whenever, you know, my own experience as well, you, you the one rule is you always back up your your goalkeeper, even though they're taking your place, you know, because you warm up with them, you train with them, you to a large degree, you always always defend them. To the other players, so something like that. Like, what, what you say in private is maybe a bit different, but you, you do always say like, "No, no, that's you know that's a tough shot, that's a tough cross." You know, that goalkeeping unit is 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 it's real because it, it's a completely different position. It is a completely different experience. So, but then Krabala coming out, pretty much, I think like after Matt Ryan makes the howl and says, "Ah." Maybe it wasn't all about politics. It's it's so bad. But at the same time, I can't help but kind of admire the the, the chutzpah <laughs> as well. I mean, yeah, just... if you talk about future, talking about you want kind of, if you want a slightly really talented, slightly um, crazy Polish goalkeeper with some, uh, you know, uh, bigger than life character, I mean, Celtic haven't done too badly before, you know. Bring so, him home. you know, bring him and that a terrible slash amazing attitude uh, back home. Yeah, 
Imagine the the feud they would have with Joe Hart. <laughs> a fist fight with Scott Bain. He'll, he'll probably come on the pod and just go, I should this. So we're running out of time. Uh, we've got the, quarter, the the quarterfinals are, are kind of uh, starting to take shape of the World Cup. But the, the time the next pod, the quarterfinals have been done and we'll be going into the semifinals. So I just want to get your impression. So the first quarterfinal uh, scheduled is uh, we have the fixture, it's Holland or Netherlands versus Argentina. What do you see happening in that game? Well, actually, Holland is a region of the Netherlands. Uh, <laughs> not many people know that, but that's uh, actually the case. Yeah. So. Uh, so, I think the the Netherlands game was, you know... Uh, Maybe because it was against the US and the US. Yeah, I don't know if you know about this about the US, uh, Graham and their soccer. And they got a lot of nerds mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. All these VLs Matt. and the US. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Matt Evans. Uh, I think you <laughs> <laughs> we in joke there. Um, so, so obviously there was a lot about you know the USA. It's like, oh, you know, it's, it's all over this. You know, look at XG and so you know. It's, but uh, I, I think. What you saw in in the Netherlands is someone who who's me who's still got this romantic notion that Messi's going all the way to the final frightened me because they do look very switched on tactically, and I think in terms of you know you have Van Gaal there, but I, I think they were just they're such a team that can like, exploit teams with, with better possession because it kind of come to a point where you go I think the US has a really good tactical setup and I think they're overall that executed those tactical ideas to up to a point as somebody said at some point you're going to realise your players aren't that good and it's just limited <laughs> what you can do and I think that's kind of what happened with the US uh, as well so I think Netherlands is, is a very dangerous combination that they have very good players overall but they also they seem like a team that would sacrifice some of the like they're not I think they're happy being tactically led and being a maybe give up a lot more possession because I think they see that's how they can actually go really far in this tournament and they can hit you the counter but they can also put together spells like you know the, the first goal is one of the best of the World Cup and it's, it's truly amazing in terms of that slow 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 quick 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 Suddenly, like burst of pace, and they got—I mean—they got the players to do that. So I think they could be lethal, especially against Argentina, um, who I, I still kind of—I guess—sentimentally, I—I I don't know even know why I'm not so much sentimental about Messi because, in, in a way, he's not—he is very well. He's incredibly—he is very like what's it? What's the word? Corporate in a way, mm-hmm. but there's something about it that kind of wants me, maybe it's something I want something rekindled in terms of football, like iconic moments and something like that, but there's something that wants that wants me to, to go really far. If, if you give me the choice now, who do you want to win like Argentina or Brazil? That's like Argentina all the way. I, I, uh, and you know yeah. how much it would annoy Cristiano Ronaldo as well. So, I mean. Well, that's, that's the other thing. I mean, I'm not, I don't think Messi is the, the opposite of Ronaldo in terms of like he's, Ronaldo is a horrible person every single way, right? And Messi, I think, is just more of a personality device, a, a vacuum, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> well, yeah. And, um, but yeah, there's something about, but I think Netherlands could be, I think that's, um, 
they could actually go quite far yeah. uh, in terms of the way they're playing now and if they executed correctly both against Argentina and, and probably Brazil as well. Yeah, they're probably probably going to have to beat both to get to the to the final because I can't see Croatia uh, stopping Brazil, which is the next quarter final after Brazil's uh, fantastic forty five minutes against Korea uh, tonight. I'm assuming you're going Brazil in that one. Yeah, I think so. Um, although I mean, Croatia has got so much experience in that team, and I think while they haven't been sparkling, I I think they can hold Brazil to you know ninety minutes in a draw as well, uh, and I think. I think that will be okay. Brazil has come up, up against Switzerland and Serbia, but I think Croatia in, in, in a knockout is it's a difficult prospect. Um, but yeah, I still think Brazil's got a bit too much for them. And then the next one, England, France. I'm assuming, please, for the love of God, you're going France. Um, I don't know, Graham. I mean, there's just something about this England team that no, makes it. makes the, me hate them even more. And <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody said, you know, there was a few like well, was a couple of wobbles on Scottish football Twitter after uh, after the Senegal game. But somebody said, look, we've been here before. It tastes even sweeter the more hubris, the more hype there is, the the more hope there is. And then it gets crushed. And imagine it gets crushed by the French. They hate the French yeah. because they, they, essentially the French is, you know, this everything the English really want to be. Mm. Essentially, and you know, this, you know, the Entente Cordial, uh, you know, this is France and Scotland's got a, a long history of disliking English. Old and alliance so, as well. So. Sorry, the old alliance between France well, and Scotland. This, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I said, yeah, it, I, said I, I said, I said it in French, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, for the love of God, I mean, I don't have a particular uh, affinity with this French team really at all, but. I like them to knock England out, and then I'd like to see them face well, Spain. Really, I mean Morocco would be fun as well, but I don't think Morocco is going to get all there. So France, Spain in the semi-final. I mean, come on, Australia, Brazil in one semi-final, and France, Spain in another one. Would be pretty good. I'm going to shock you here. So first of all, yeah. yes, France yes. beating England, yes. and is there is there anything more England like than getting to a quarterfinal of a World Cup? Having only beaten USA, Iran, Wales, and Senegal, that is the most England story you'll ever hear. I mean, they haven't even beaten the US, so yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what what my the way I'm going to shock you is I'm going to say Spain beat Morocco, yeah. Switzerland beat Portugal, mm. and then Switzerland beat Spain. Mm. Do you think about that? Well, I, Germany showed that Spain can be got at. You know what I mean? Like it. I feel as if there could be something there. I, I think so. I mean, I mean, Switzerland beat France in the Euros, for example, as well, which is a mad game. But no, Graham, I'm, I'm going to have to s- correct you. I, I don't think they will. Uh, probably will now. I said that, but I, I think this something about this Spain team. I think when they need to, that they'll just take all possession away from it. And I, I think, yeah. Okay, there's always that thing, do they score enough goals? And they're like, yeah, yeah well, scored a few against Costa Rica and stuff like that. But I, I think they'll be fine. I think Spain will be... Because I think also something about you running as well. You know, they've played Costa Rica, Japan, Germany's you know, getting Morocco there as well. I think, as you saw with Brazil tonight, I think I think they'll get past Morocco after... I'm putting myself up for a fall there. But, I, I, you know, usually this will be... And easy as, as could like physically 
exertion as well in terms of getting to the last 18. I think Portugal and Switzerland will be a tough, tough battle in, in terms of that. And I think then Spain and the team who can, even against Switzerland, can have 70, 75% possession uh, at some point, I think will just be too much for them. You shouldn't listen to me anyway, because I had 50 quid on Germany to win it and uh, 10 quid on Serbia to get to the final. Oh, you, sh- you should have listened to Arsene Wenger, right? Yeah, on on nothing, on nothing. So I think we're we're up to about the ninety minutes now. So I can feel Gal panicking in the background. But I mean, the the World Cup has shown that there's always about ten minutes of extra time. So topical, topical joke. Uh, Thanks. Next week we'll hopefully have uh, someone on from Spirit of Shankly to talk over the uh, Liverpool takeover. We'll also be addressing any World Cup stuff that comes up, any Celtic transfer news. Hopefully, we will have signed at least four. New players by all strikers, all strikers, yeah, uh, all from VVV Venmo, <laughs> uh, and yeah, and we'll, we'll, whatever else comes up in the mad world of football. I've been your host, Graham McKay. Christian, it's been an absolute pr- pleasure. It's a pleasure being all mine. That's always great. Lovely. We'll catch you down the road. <laughs> <laughs>